Hello, and welcome back to this episode of the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's a pleasure to have Drew D'Agostino, who is the CEO of one of my favorite AI tools, Crystal Nose. Drew, thank you for coming. And would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are and who you serve and your journey so far to get to where you are? Thanks, Marcus. My name is Drew D'Agostino. I am the founder and CEO of Crystal. We have an app called Crystal, and it's the app that tells you anybody's personality. A lot of people in sales, recruiting, and leadership use our product to communicate more effectively and uh, build stronger relationships, build stronger teams. Been running Crystal for about a little over five years now, originally from New York. And before this, I had had another tech company, so this is my second one. Now we are based in Nashville, Tennessee, and just growing company. Why Nashville? It has nothing to do with business. I actually like came here for a relationship originally, and I was starting Crystal at the time, so I wanted to get out of the Northeast and move down here. Excellent. Okay. So t- tell me, what are the four most common questions that prospects are asking you about using Crystal in order to be able to perform better in their roles as sales recruiters? Um, so the four most common, I mean, there's, there's a lot of questions we get. One of them is, how do you get the data? That's like the most common question. Okay. And people use our product and it tells them their personality without a personality test. And it gets accurate about 80, 85% of the time. And pe- naturally, people say, how do you know this? It's like the key question of Crystal. <laughs> so we use the machine learning and it analyzes writing style. So it can tell you off of combinations of words, phrases, writing style, and assessment of your personality as if you had taken a personality assessment. And that's not perfect. Like I said, it's about 85% accurate, but we can usually determine which of four major personality traits based on disk that uh, kind of predict how you'd behave. So it's the most common question. I have to say it is very accurate. So the 80 to 85% is borne out in the field. When I use this to demonstrate to my clients, there's normally a sharp intake of breath. How do you know that? I'm curious, how do you get past the fact that people often have other people write their profiles and manage their LinkedIn content? So I'm not usually in a position to tell people how to you know, manage the LinkedIn profiles. We're mostly trying to interpret them. So about the interpretation. So yeah. are those the 15% where you have uh, the inaccuracy creep in? Yeah, it usually has to do with either not enough data or LinkedIn profiles that are actually mostly written by someone else. So your yeah. second question. Right, yeah. All right, second question. One of them would be how do you know what do you what do you do with personality data? Because it's this it's historically people either think of personality data on one of two sides. On one end of the spectrum, it's hey, this is horoscopes and Facebook quizzes. You know, this doesn't mean anything. It's just kind of fun. And then the other side, you have, I'm sure we've all met somebody who's like obsessed with personality types and over-ascribes everything to your personality type. So thanks yeah. to you. Neither of those are accurate. The reality is that personality has several identifiable, measurable traits that is backed up in the science, which is progressing pretty fast. And you know, what do we, what can we describe personality and what can we not? And several personality frameworks like the Big Five and DISC and others have a pretty good 
track record and basis of validation so that you can say this is how somebody's likely to behave in given circumstances. So it's not predicting the future. It's not saying that this is a guarantee, but you can kind of get behavioral tendencies and things that we all know intuitively by getting to know each other over time. So what you do with that is it gives you a whole other layer of data to understand things like how your customers want to communicate, how prospects want to communicate, and then even how you can make better decisions about your career and on behalf of your team. So understanding people better is really useful in business. Certainly what I've found is uh, using this kind of information can help me modify my behavior so that I can deliver the personality type my prospects need to feel comfortable with me. Also, in terms of recruitment, what I've found over the last 34 years is that managers tend to recruit in their own image, only weaker. So what very often happens is when they're recruiting, their team starts skewing towards particular behavioral types. And in some cases, that can be helpful. But often what you need is more diversity in terms of the team because uh, some salespeople will respond better and sell more effectively to one personality type or another. And if you don't have that mix, then very often if your salespeople aren't really adept at being able to uh, modify their behavior intentionally or aren't aware of it, then what you find is that they leave a lot of money on the table because they might be selling to a committee, but they're unable to adapt to certain styles. So in disc terms, you know, a lot of salespeople are high DI, and if they're selling to a high C, so a dominant influencer selling to a cautious compliant type needs to modify their behavior significantly. And if they don't, then they will leave that person cold towards them. And remember, selling is, and recruitment are human activities. You're dealing with people, not automatons. So as a resource, it's a fabulous tool for helping you to identify how you need to plan the type of questions, your, your communication style, so that you can modify so that you end up making your prospect comfortable with you. And so one of the ways I use this is to teach my clients how to build and maintain rapport with a variety of people within a buying committee. So that's how I use it. And an important key there too is when you're, when you're talking about adjusting communication or changing your style, this is a key. This kind of, I could be the third question too, because some variation of how do I communicate better or how do, how do I use this to write messages or just conduct meetings? And at first, it sounds like you're just describing personality mirroring. Like I can see this person behaving this way and therefore I should behave in the way they are. That is not what this, that's, that's not what DISC is about or personality-driven communication really is. Um, because it's not actually that, it's not as, as effective. There are some aspects which, you know, you'll have to level up a personality trait to meet someone else where they're at. But on some of them, it actually means quite the opposite. So what oftentimes we kind of find in complementary relationships or communication that works really well. It is when people share some important traits in common, and those usually have to do with interpersonal behavior. So their warmth or skepticism towards other people, the general people are naturally warm towards others or naturally skeptical, naturally skeptical towards others. That tends to, they tend to be on the same page, but with opposite attitudes towards their environment. So if somebody is naturally 
I call them like shapers. So if somebody wants to shape and change their environment, it's a trial and error kind of person, along with somebody who's more of a reactor and uh, is going to observe and think and measure twice and cut once before. Those combinations tend to communicate and collaborate really well because they're speaking the same language in terms of, you know, how we connect as people, but a totally different language when it comes to what do we do together? You know, you're able to fill those two roles really well. Exactly. So that's another important thing to differentiate between just matching what somebody else is doing and just understanding their personality so that you can both connect with them better and then collaborate more effectively. One other thing that I would add is if you've been trained in Samba, then one of the, the skills that you learn is the upfront contract. And what's really interesting, my pal Carlos Carino has devised upfront contracts based on someone's disc style. Because what we know is that people are driven by different things. So, for example, the biggest fear of high Ds is a loss of control typically. I mean, this is, it's obviously being too generic, but you know, you've got a good probability they want to have control. I's is fear of rejection. S's want to be appreciated and want to be connected. And uh, high C's tend to try and avoid making mistakes. And so it allows you to focus your attention in terms of how you craft your messages towards those styles very effectively. Have you seen that being applied? Yeah, you mean, so you mean, Crafting them effectively across like a whole group? Well, if you know that somebody is a high dominant, then when you're putting your upfront contract together, you might say, instead of doing a generic upfront contract, you might say, Drew, thanks for inviting me in to talk about taking your company to the next level. You know, building a business is the sort of thing that's re- renowned is for excellence in your market and attracts the best customers and the best staff. It could be that we decide not to take this process any further. You've probably got priorities that are more important than addressing market rejection and that you're getting at the moment. And you don't want to be uncomfortable telling me that. Can can you be upfront with me? And so you modify your approach on the basis of what their likely drivers are uh, Mm -hmm. right from the outset. And it's it's really important to know what they're looking for in not just the actual pitch, that you're giving so there's the what but then there's also the how and the why so uh, i call that like the empathy equation keeping in mind the what does somebody want why do they want it and how should how do they want to be communicated with so Excellent. we often think of just the what which is hey i am selling widgets like this is this is this is the thing but when you dig deeper and understand the why that's where you get into not just personality but then also motivations and values so understanding this, sure, this person is in the market for widgets, but why are they doing that? And that's going to change. So if you're describing someone who's a high D, so a driver or an architect or a captain, the why is often paired with personal and it's tied with rapid advancement because these are 10 people who accelerate their way up ladders and that's, that's driving their careers. So not just understanding the service level of the product, but understanding how does this impact the thing I really care about? And then the how, um, which is, like you described, getting right to the point with them and skipping over the small talk or the mm-hmm. soft intros. Like, hey, hope you're doing well. We're doing great over here in California. You know, like, <laughs> and then quite the opposite for somebody who's a different style, like a, like an S, who you really want to lean into the 
personal connection, trust building, and making sure that you're not putting the cart before the horse when you're describing the what, you know? So yeah, I think you're right on with that. So your fourth question. My fourth question. I think, I mean, people always seem to ask, why did you start Crystal? And that's been a changing answer as they've gone along to tell you the truth, because I think the answer actually has changed. Because why I started it, I don't really remember. It was mostly curiosity. And it was because I needed a job. <laughs> and this seemed like a cool way to pursue a business. But um, over time, there's a reason why like every year I've kind of like renewed my quote unquote contract with Crystal, because I see it evolve and I see the different opportunities that it gives us. So I think, yeah, when I get that question pretty frequently, I get to reassess why am I actually doing this? And I think the reason is because I've never seen a tech. I love really working on technology products, brings you around some really cool people and you're able to move really fast. Love that about technology. But the thing about Crystal is that it's a technology product that impacts people's like emotions and their relationships and their basically just like they're very, the most important thing to them, which is their relationships in a very real tangible way. And I learned that whenever, that's why I always try to do in-person demos as much as I can, even though most of our, I've never met most of our customers because they see it and then they immediately want to go look at, okay, what is my boss personality? And what does it say about his communication style or my husband or wife or the first, this person who's like, and who's been working with me forever. They always want to start with the people they know. And then it kind of like it reveals this new level or things that they knew were true, but puts words to them that they didn't have. So I love that. And I love the reaction to that. And I love the fact that I get to work in a a business that is, you know, where we are from a business perspective, but also that I just always have something to talk about because everybody wants to talk about their relationships. I'm no. curious, how, how many users do you have and how many personality profiles has uh, Crystal now run? Because that, that must be a huge number by now. The personality profiles, I'm not really sure. I'd have to look that up. And the last time we got anything like that, it's in the tens of millions as far as personality profiles. But as far as users, I'd say it's, it's just under a million users who have you know, signed up, created their profile, gone through our tools. Yeah, yeah. Those aren't paying. Those aren't paying customers, but that's just people who use the platform for free. Right. Okay. So tell me this: there must be questions that people should be asking, but they're not. What What are the three most commonly unasked questions really should be asking, either about personality or about using profiling as a, a tool to help them in their work? Hmm. The questions that you should not be asking. That you should I mean, be asking. Should be asking that they are not. Yeah, that they are not asking. There's a couple. I, I would I kind of separate them by, I guess, three levels of behavior. One being myself. So, what assumptions have I been living by, or like what biases have I been living with? That am I? How am I allowing my personality to get in the way of my own success? That's a fabulous question. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. And this is, again, been another part of like self-exploration as I've been living in this world of personality for the last five years. Man, it's like, I'll give you just my personal story from it. So what I mean by this is I am naturally an ID, very high I, also deep. 
So I'm high on the personality map, influencer type. And what that means is I've gone through life thinking that I am a scatterbrained, pretty creative, but someone who cannot pay attention to details. And I always let things fall through the cracks. And I'm always trying to bounce from idea to idea. And somewhere along the line, I got the, I got the idea in my head that that meant I was broken in some way, that this is like a problem that I, that I always have these different ideas and I always want to bounce around and I get bored at first, you know, I get bored after working on something initially and then can't follow through. I mean, if you look at my high school career, that's what happened. I was on the football team. I was in the jazz ensemble. I was in the debate club. I was in the radio club. I joined, uh, I think I was in a play at once a little bit before that. I was in wrestling at one point. I had art lessons. I played the saxophone and the piano. And like, I just would not stop. I just constantly was going into these different things. And then I looked at college and I was doing all these little businesses and trying to figure out stuff and starting things and then kind of not not following through with it. And then even into adulthood, I look at my life and I'm like, oh crap. Like I, I try to pursue a lot of things at once, like business stuff and music stuff and flying and all this. And somewhere along the line, probably around somewhere around college, I had let it, I'd let that, let it sink in this like weird guilt sink in because everyone around me was telling me you need to focus, you know, you need to choose this path and get obsessive about it. And otherwise you're not going to succeed. I mean, I tried doing that in my career and then over time, either refined focus in certain areas or just went through life thinking that like, you know, I'm just a flawed individual because I can't, I'm going to, I'm going to not pursue all these ideas, not pursue all these things at once. And just really try to focus because that is, uh, that's just me being immature. It's like me being a little child running around with a box of crayons and drawing and everything. I lived through life with that assumption and it only clicked for me about two years ago as a result of Crystal and as a result of like writing out this stuff and writing advice for people, <laughs> learning that the I, my personality being so extreme in that top region of the disc map is actually a really good gift for people because there are many people that are not there and there are many people who don't share the same strengths I have. And me holding back of those strengths because I'm concerned about my own weaknesses and self-conscious about them is actually withholding a tremendous like gift to my team and to the people, whoever I come in contact with. So rather than put all of my energy into trying to cover up my weaknesses and cover up my blank spots, and what this meant at my job was I was doing my best to, to manage things hands-on and become a better like executor and become more organized and diligent and detail oriented and working on all the areas of the business that I really should not be working on. It's cool if I want to improve them, just get good enough. But all of the things in like the C part of the business and the S part of the business were sucking up my time and dragging me away from my strengths, which were the creative parts and the vision and strategy and, and new ideas. So I was burned out and kind of sick of my job wasn't sure how long I wanted to do this for until I made that decision that, you know, I'm going to lean into my strengths instead and not focus on the blind spots. I, there are people with those strengths. So I actually at that point had brought in um, Greg who had founded another company with me and he became our full-time president and COO and he's exactly opposite in his strengths. And as soon as I did that and learned that he could take over the parts of the business where I was really weak and I could then put my energy towards my strengths. I all of a sudden had this really strong, it was, it was kind of like it unlocked a secret weapon. 
because I'm very good at the parts of my personality that have revolved around, you know, new ideas, interpreting a lot of data quickly and then coming together with a solution. Like all these nonlinear kind of more abstract parts of business, that's where I thrive. And now I can live there a lot more. This is really interesting. Have you read Marcus Buckingham's book, The One Thing You Need to Know? I've not, no. Marcus Buckingham was head of research for Gallup, and they developed the StrengthsFinder profile off the back of 29 years' worth of research, half a million interviews with people who are at the top of their game across six continents, 90-minute interviews with each of them. And the the message he says, or he gives, is um, identify your strengths and find people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. Your strengths are your development areas. So actually, this is borne out in the reality. And Drew's experience here uh, is exactly the same. I don't know if you've seen StrengthsFinder, but I did mine about eight or nine years ago. And I restructured all of my work around the things that I have strengths in. And I brought my wife into the business, or rather she brought herself into the business to rescue it, because I was terrible at all that other stuff. And frankly, I think we're solvent because we work as a great partnership, because what she does, I could not do. But equally, she can't do what I do. And together, we're much better. This then raises another question. I don't know if you've read a couple of very interesting books, uh, Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed and Reach Arranged by David Epstein. Because your background is that of a generalist. You've bounced around doing lots of different things. And now that you're working in an area of specialization, what you're capable of doing is drawing on those multiple experiences and those different environments uh, in order to be able to connect the dots where someone who is a very narrow specialist would struggle. So there is a really strong argument to having very diverse teams because diverse teams bring different perspectives so that you get the whole picture instead of just one filter uh, against another. And where you have uh, people with a wide range of experience operating in specialist fields, then what you end up with is people who are hyper-creative at solving special problems. Because again, I think it was Pfizer, if I remember rightly, uh, had a number of problems that they were struggling with for many years, you know, a couple of decades. And a new manager came in, set up a website, and put these questions out to the public. And within about three months, 20 of their hardest problems that chemists, uh, world-class chemists hadn't been able to resolve were resolved by a patent attorney, a garage mechanic, a carpenter, uh, because they were looking at the problem through a different lens. So I think that's a really fascinating point. Okay, what's the second unasked question that people should be asking? Yeah, it has has to do with communicating interpersonal relationships and with people that I know well. Um, And that would be in the areas of life, like in in the most important relationships, so whether that's professional or personal, we go through these very, you go through swings. You know, sometimes it feels like they're going well, sometimes it doesn't. And Mike, I guess I'm not sure how to frame it as a question really, but you want to find out if there's a control conflict or a control vacuum. So where is this, you know, where is the momentum of this relationship or where is the the core conflict? Because every relationship has a kind of a core conflict at it. And when it goes, and when, when it becomes times of stress or 
both people are tired or dealing with things that comes out and how you manage that conflict really impacts the relationship moving forward. And so at the core of it, all relationships, if they're both towards the top end of like the disc or the personality map, you can have a control conflict, which means that in a situation that's stressful, these are two people who might try to both take control. Even if they're really collaborative and patient with each other during normal times. So when things get stressful, if there's a control conflict, the opposite would be both people towards the bottom end of the disc and more reactive. For them, there's a control vacuum. And when things get stressful, they're looking and, and responding and analyzing as opposed to one person kind of taking the lead. So if you understand that dynamic about a relationship, it's like, which, which side are we naturally on? Or are we naturally on opposite sides? It can really help you in the hardest parts of uh, hardest conversations that you have with most important people. That's um, really interesting. So can, can you take pairings using Crystal to pair two profiles together and see where that conflict or uh, command might occur or vacuum yeah. might occur? Yeah. So if you have two people who are on the same vertical side of the disk map, it will tell you that in a conflict, they're likely to basically butt heads. And you want to, one person is going to need to intentionally take a more passive role during uncertainty. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. And it's the opposite. If two people, if both people are on the same bottom side of the vertical axis, it'll tell you all right, somebody needs to intentionally take a, a more leading driving role. If both of them are high D, are we talking about the same disc style or it could be a high D and a high C? No, in this case, it could be a high D and a high I. Think about the disc to like split down the middle. All right, okay. Yeah, so in conflict, there are certain types which you have to be really careful when conflict or stress comes up because they are both trying to control the same thing and they're also speaking different languages. So D's and D's, it can be bad because they're competitive and want to want to control the same thing, but at least they're speaking the same language. They're going to get right to the point and they're going to want to get to the truth of the matter and they're not going to pay attention to emotions usually. But if you have a D and an I in conflict, that's kind of a, a pairing that really needs a lot of attention and a lot of, a lot of intention in a conflict because they're, Yes, they're going to have the same thing where they both want to control the outcome, but also they are speaking different languages. And in that environment, an I is going to want to be brainstorming, going to want to be naturally optimistic, even in the face of unpredictable circumstances and the data not not speaking that way. And the D is going to be opposite. D is going to want to get down to brass tacks and be extremely pragmatic, a little bit ruthless in execution. So if both of them are trying to same, control the same solution, chances are they're not going to arrive at the same solution. So one needs to take the more passive seat. Very interesting. Okay, third unasked question. Third unasked question would be, it would be about communicating with, since this is all, I'm kind of keeping this under the lens of what we do because it's helpful to think through these lenses for me. But um, so communicating with people I don't know and meeting new people. I would say questions that clearly don't get asked enough when people reach out to me for various business reasons is what is actually, what's actually important to the person you're reaching out to. So when you're sending a prospect email, 
I mean, I get a lot of them just because I'm big on LinkedIn as you are. And like, there's just tons of these messages that come in. Various people trying to sell all kinds of services. And any leader right now will tell you that because that's just seems to be the an avenue that many people are trying outbound sales. I'm just so amazed at the time, the time a lot of BDRs or anybody in sales will take to put together an email and maybe even put put together some facts about me and do some outreach, but completely miss the point of the outreach in the first place, which is not like you basically describe a big paragraph and then go for the, Hey, can I get 15 minutes of your time for a call or trying to go right for this, right for this close in a me in a totally different medium in a way, like I, in a way that is very, in, in many cases, just disruptive to the day. Like, why would I actually do that? And they could have done a much better job if they just answered the question of like, what does this person actually want? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So when it comes to outreach to new people, I always, and this is what I tell my team and anybody who asks me advice on it, and you probably go through a lot of the sim- a lot of similar things in your coaching. I always just think about like, what do you actually want? And do you actually want this? You, you can't expect somebody to immediately translate all these things in their mind, get on the phone with you and be interested in a product. And they're thinking on a much, I mean, they're going about their day thinking on much simpler terms. Whereas yesterday for me personally, what am I thinking about all day? Uh, it's, I really need to effectively communicate this new strategy to my team. So putting together a document and a slide deck and my, my thinking right now is change management. You know, it's a a tough spot where we need to make a lot of changes. How do I lead my company through this? So it's, that's like a burning problem. There are a lot of ways that other vendors can help me with that. Certainly. Um, But in the, in the language that they often use when communicating with me or anybody, any other leader who's in given circumstance, it's not even really trying to get to the problem I'm thinking about right now, or even asking about it, but immediately making an assumption that my solution can help you. Can we talk about how my solution can help you? Instead of getting in the prospect's world, kind of immersing yourself in their story, and then just learning the details of that story before really trying to sell anything. So what I mean by that is, so for example, outreach, like on LinkedIn, rather than sending an email with the giant what, and then a call to action. So why not send a why email, you know, say, uh, Hey, Marcus, I noticed that you've been, you know, running this coaching practice, but you're also doing podcasts and, and, and all these other initiatives. I work in X, you know, it's not cryptic, but asking a question specifically about that. So in my case, if I was sending you an email and I saw all of these parts of your, you know, your LinkedIn or your background, I wouldn't just say, Hey, can I, uh, get 15 minutes of your time so we can talk about personality assessments and talk about using personality predictions or clients? I wouldn't ask that. I would ask something like, do you use personality assessments with your clients right off the bat? Or have you tried changing your communication based on personality? So I'll ask you a question that is, of course, trying to get to the point, which is me explaining why the product solution because will work or help you. But it's first trying to just understand your story you know so maybe i'd rephrase that a little bit it would be what don't i know about this person's story and how can i find that out and 
I think that that's trying to have, that's just the mindset I use often in outreach. It's everybody's got this story. The further you can kind of get into it and understand it, the better chance you have of building a meaningful relationship. I think you've touched on a couple of things here, which are really important. The first is that selling should not be a selfish activity. And the problem that I see happen very often is salespeople have a mistaken belief that people have any interest in you, your company, your products, or your services. I always equate it to showing photos of your ugly children to strangers. They'll politely look at one or two, but then they're switching off and they're thinking, when can I get, how can I get rid of this clown? Second thing is if you are trying to do outreach on LinkedIn, you need to understand LinkedIn is a flirt. It's not something that works well where you just hammer people with features and benefits because no one cares. They, they don't care about you. They don't care about your products or services. And ask yourself the question, when was the last time that you actually put your hand in your pocket and spent money when you read a leaflet or a, product, a piece of product information for the first time? Trying to engage people, you need to use some savvy. What Crystal allows you to do is get into the minds of the people that you're trying to prospect and provide them with a message that they will be open to and willing to hear. It's really important that as salespeople and as managers, you teach your salespeople and you coach your salespeople not to go straight to try and jump into bed with the prospect. I mean, I remember a few months ago, I had a very useful email from a company in China selling me uh, radiography machines. Now, clearly, they hadn't bothered to look at my profile. They had no idea what I was doing, and they were spamming. And this is another thing that you have to get away from when you're on LinkedIn, which is you have to stop trying to treat everyone the same. Every approach, and this is where digital and social selling really come into their own, is it needs to be personalized. I think this is one of the beauties of what Crystal offers us, is it allows us the ability to personalize and humanize our communication, where we're talking about what matters to the prospect, the other person, rather than ourselves. Because we are not important in the sale. When we meet a prospect, if we get squashed by the number 73 bus, the best you can hope for after a first meeting is as they look out, they say, ah, Marcus is going to make me late. And I think we have to be really aware of what matters to the other person. When you're in sales, people buy for their reasons, not your reasons. So Drew's point about finding out their why is crucial. I'd like to move on to the, the business itself. Uh, I'm curious, I mean, what are the challenges that you've faced that you've been able to address as a result of having these insights into personality and motivation in building Crystal as a business? So kind of a meta question of how we use our own data for ourselves. Yeah. So the dog food question. Yeah. The best example is what I already kind of told you is replacing myself. When my co-founder came into the company and we drew, we basically drew up all of my jobs that I was doing on a whiteboard and we came up with about 20 of them, jobs that that were taking a significant amount of my time. And Right off the bat, I think we knocked out about 10 of them. And then over the next year, replaced all of them until I only have three jobs now, which is from 20 to three. It's a pretty big difference. And we did that by 
giving a lot to him, dispersing authority to people on the team, finding other solutions to solve problems until I am really most of my time working in my wheelhouse. So using disk and finding out where each job kind of lies on where each role lies on the disk and how close that is to my natural behavior was really helpful. And we do that exercise for everybody on the team now. So we'll try to align people into roles that are very close to their, or at least most of the time are close to their personality. Really interesting. So tell me this, do you often find that you spend entire days in flow? It's a lot easier to do that now. I don't know if it's an entire day of flow, but certainly big three or four hour chunks. I would say it is the exception, not the rule. When I'm out of, when, I'm, when I really just need to get grind through a project that is out of my personality style. I mean, it happens totally. You know, sometimes you just need to fill out a huge document that has a bunch of security questions on it, that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, I'd say that that is, that's certainly true for me that I'm working in my wheelhouse most of the time. And for a bunch of the people on our team, again, this is not perfect. There's always going to be parts of a job that, you know, I call it driving far away from home when you need to use a lot of gas to get there. I hope, and this is my goal, that we set up a company where most people are staying close to, close to home, quote unquote, with their job most of the time. That's why, that way they've got plenty of gas when they need to stretch. So. so I want to find out what your three roles are. But what I'm also interested in is when I define a strength, the strength is something that you look forward to doing. When you do it, you do it well. You get great feedback. Time flies when you're doing it. So when I'm training, for example, I'm always amazed that three hours is up because it feels like 20 minutes to me. But in the moment, what happens is my perception of time has slowed right down. So I see every movement. When I'm selling and I'm in flow, then I start to see every physiological shift. I see uh, little micro expressions, all that kind of stuff. And when it's over, I cannot wait to do it again. And that, when you have a team that's operating like that, you have employees who are engaged. It also is projected out to the customer that you have people who love what they do. They're fully committed to it. And even if they get their attempts to poach them, they find it very difficult to move because the grass cannot be greener on the other side. Even if they're tempted by um, a higher pay packet, many people will stay because they love what they do. I was a headhunter for 10 years, and I've recruited for the best part of 30. And what I've realized is that money is a very low on the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, what matters is being appreciated, feeling like you're doing important, meaningful work, feeling fully engaged. Those are the things that keep people in a job and keep them loyal. So I'm really curious to find out about those three th those three role functions. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it's company strategy, product design, and messaging. So both product messaging and external messaging. Those are kind of my three my three strengths at Crystal. And how do you use your executive team and your the rest of your team in order to challenge your thinking? To challenge my thinking. So as far as challenging goes. We have a pretty open, transparent culture in where whenever there's a major decision, it is not a democracy. You know, we're not just putting it up for a vote, but I let people in either on an individual basis or a group basis pretty frequently. And as far as, you know, 
what are we thinking here? And like, like you said, if there's a carpenter and a patent attorney and a mechanic, how, what lens are they seeing this through? So I try to put all of our major decisions through as many lenses as I can. So that often means our team. So I want to put it through the engineer's lens and the marketer's lens and the content lens, but then also our customers. So like I have, I've gotten this like LinkedIn group started where I'm trying to bring in our best, most, you know, frequent users of the products and run by product feedback and mock-ups and things, even at a pretty early stage to understand what they're thinking and understand what their reaction is to it. So, yeah, I would say soliciting, soliciting feedback on a very regular basis earlier than I think I need it. And I would also say, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that concept of like, would you rather be king or something to do with being rich or famous where you can choose, choose either of them. Always remembering that at the end of the day, there is a lot of credit to go around and I want people to feel, and people are not going to feel full ownership of a project or full ownership of an initiative unless they end up with some of the glory at the end. So I'm always trying to think in those terms of like, what are the non-financial incentives of getting this thing done? And usually there is some, it's like social recognition or external recognition, personal advancement, skills. So as a CEO, I'm not just paying people money. Like you said, there's also all of these other non-financial currencies going around. And I want to have a really good feel for what those are. So is there social currency at play here? Or is there like some kind of recognition or personal advancement or learning currency? And then to be able to use those really well, even though they're a little bit less, they're harder to measure and they kind of float under the surface. So I try to have a good feel for that so that I can, you know, just create a culture where the incentives are all aligned and good. Excellent. What's the best mistake you've made as a CEO, either with your previous or your current company that's taught you the most valuable lesson? Best mistake? I mean, one could argue, you can read, you can read our book. It's, it's got the story of how Crystal began, like the very beginning. And it started with my co-founder and I getting fired from our previous <laughs> business. We were kicked off the board, fired from the company all within a week. It's crazy. We made a lot of mistakes then. And it wasn't one specific big mistake, but just the entire accumulation of like figuring out I grow a company. We had this venture backed software business. And then just a series of both interpersonal and tactical and technology errors, which led to our downfall in that. I'm really glad that we got to make those mistakes and we weren't insulated from the from the fallout because we were pretty much just unemployed the next week. There was no soft landing. And uh, because of that, I was able to learn a lot more, both as a leader and a technology person. And very quickly, both Greg and I were able to apply those lessons into a, a real world scenario. We didn't have to wait years. We were able to wait a couple months. So glad we made that overall <laughs> mistake. Okay. If you were advising a technology scale-up founder around the private equity or venture capital side of raising funding, what advice would you give them in order not to fall foul of the many traps that appear to be um, you know, very common? How would you help them protect themselves from falling foul of the evil financiers? 
I have a couple of simple questions that I ask because this is a conversation I have fairly frequently. For one, I ask them, would you invest in your own company? And you'd be surprised at how many people they're raising money on a company they actually wouldn't invest in themselves. You know, like we can learn all this about publicly traded stocks and we, it's funny. So I just try to encourage founders to put themselves in the seat of an investor and think, okay, well, let's imagine you've got some money that you've got some money you want to invest. You want to get a return on it and a reasonable degree of, you know, chances that it's going to succeed. And you want to feel good about the thing you're investing in and, and allow it to add to your life in some way. Would you invest in your company where you're at at the rate that you're asking, you know? And it's just so funny. Like that often we don't even think about that as founders. Like, wait, would I actually put my money in this? This <laughs> So that's a key question. Would I actually, is this an investable thing? Because if you do believe in it, it's an investable thing, then you also have a lot more leverage because why are you trying to sell it then? Because you already own a hundred percent of it. It puts all of those funding questions in a real, I think, objective place. You know, if I believed my company with 100%, with 100%, you know, certainty is going to succeed and take off and be worth all these millions of dollars in the future, why would I be selling that right now? I'm holding on to the best stock I can. So, but there are, of course, real practical steps to getting there, like having cash in the bank. So you need to make decisions from that place instead of this blind, hey, I'm seeking all of my validation just from a big round of funding. Let's see what I can do. So that's one. And then the differences between money. I think there's three, there's really three types of money that come in. There's smart money, dumb money, and poison money. Smart money is great because it's money that's attached to value, you know, and that value can come in strategic partnerships, new relationships, markets that open up, experience, advice, all the stuff that comes from really truly good investors. There's dumb money, comes in, doesn't do anything, it's just money. And then there's poison money, which money comes in the door and then immediately that's where you hear the horror stories about, you know, things being taken over and people, all the horror stories they can read about in Silicon Valley or watch. The problem is everybody, of course, I always, you'd always say like, go look for smart money because that's the best one. But the the problem is that poison money always masquerades as smart money. Dumb money is generally a lot safer. So I generally err towards the, towards the side of raising dumb money that's not attached to too many positives, but also tend to avoid some of the negatives and we can really just focus on the business. And that also sets the expectations well too. I tend to have a really good relationship with our, our investors at Crystal at least because the expectation is not either way. Like their expectation is not that we're going to be making decisions based on their advice too much. You know, they're, they're happy to provide it, but they know that we are the ones in control. And likewise, I'm not leaning on my investors to open up a market or help us make the biggest strategic decisions or anything like that, because that's our job. You know, that's why they gave us the money in the first place. I lean on my investors for things that they are really good at, which is, hey, can you give me a perspective on what this environment is that you're invested in? Because I don't have as clear of a view into the overall market. Or I know you've seen this management issue or this hiring issue before across multiple companies. Can you help me solve this? Or do you know someone who's a good fit for this role? Like that kind of stuff. Because investors are generally really, really well suited for certain, certain parts of the business like that. So I find that treating the money as just dumb and just looking for the dumb money and then seeing everything else that comes from it as a bonus, it allows you to preserve a lot of upside with investors and avoid a lot of the, a lot of the downside. So, so let me ask you this. 
what are you being influenced by in terms of what you're reading, listening to, watching at the moment that you think that the listeners might find valuable? To be honest, I just spent the last two days watching Tiger King on Netflix. So I know a lot of people. Is that any good? Because I, I, it's on my watch list. Yeah, it's wild. I'd say it's it's influencing my thinking quite a bit because I can't stop thinking about it. It's just so wild. <laughs> so that I started uh, I started reading a biography of William Wilberforce. So I've always found him a really fascinating oh, figure right. for the abolition of slavery in the early 1800s. And I am currently memorizing. Uh, the book of Romans in the Bible. That's been wild. I've been trying to get into these old these old letters from Paul because there's just so much richness to them. It's been really fascinating, especially especially the things that have to deal with like suffering and how do you navigate, you know, how do you navigate a world that is wasting away when we mm-hmm. kind of see that up front. Um, so anyway, it's been it's been really cool to kind of dive into that a little bit and see what's kind of going on in the world and you know what's going on internally because there's a big part of Corinthians that I kind of live by, which is uh, though our outer selves are wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. So those are really shaping my thinking right now. Very interesting. Thank you. Tell me this. If you had a golden ticket and you could advise the idiot Drew age 23 how to avoid a lifetime of self-sabotage and other forms of idiocy, <laughs> what advice would you give him? I would say don't talk yourself out of your crazy ideas. Tend to overestimate the downside of crazy ideas. Not all of them. There's some crazy <laughs> when, when you say, yeah, go, don't go do cocaine. Good to talk yourself out of that one. But um, I think we can, we can play a lot of games in our head and let ourselves just not pursue a crazy idea because we think there's some crazy downside. And meanwhile, the downside is just not that high. So the world wants your crazy ideas. And the world wants to, to look at something that is new. So. Usually that comes from the imagination and I wish that I would talk myself out of those things less. That's good advice. I think take risks and maximize your risk. And if you can cope with the downside, do it. Too often people just limit themselves and a life without risk is a life without growth. So final question then, what what are you struggling with in your business? I mean, coronavirus aside, what are you struggling with or wrestling with at the moment? Uh, coronavirus aside, it's hard to it's hard to separate everything out. But so we've been very patient, and now in light of the coronavirus, I'm I feel a little bit validated in our decisions to be patient because we we're in a very good financial position as a company. But right now, we are about to be way more aggressive in how we pursue growth. So I have the challenge of saying what parts of our product are showing the most promise, and what parts are not. So what parts do we just basically let slip away? And that is a really hard question because it's like your child in a way, you know? <laughs> it's like, what are the best aspects of this that we want to preserve? Yeah, all these little features are like children. You basically have to choose your favorites. So um, that is an exercise that we're going through right now to refine our, refine our product, refine our pricing, refine our messaging. So far, it's been really cool to see. Actually, it's been a lot of good results of it, especially in regards to identifying the people that love Crystal the most. It's been very fruitful. But that's an ongoing exercise. My coach asked me a question because I was working on a plan at the moment. And um, I have a tendency to come up with lots of ideas. And his question to me was quite insightful, which is, if you could only have 50%, which 50% would you keep? And that forced me to reevaluate 
because I realized that one of the things I was telling people that they should do is simplify. And I managed to massively overcomplicate. So I'm really curious about this. I mean, in terms of distribution, all of your sales are done online, presumably. Do you use channel partners at all? A little bit. Sandler is one of them. And um, we have a few others, but that accounts for you know, a minority of our revenue. Most of the revenue is self-service online signups. And are you planning to look at channel more or are you going to scale up more of the digital? Well, with a couple of the upcoming changes to our products, they'll probably cater a little bit better to channel partnerships. And what I mean by that is um, right now we're a very user-based thing. So our pricing is structured based on the amount of users. That doesn't work as well when you're talking about channel partnerships because you generally with those types of products are not getting an entire team signed up for a thing. The way our product is shifting is far more towards, we're calling them um, playbooks, little sneak, sneak preview. And one person kind of delivering lots of value for other people. When we have a much more focused target, and it tends to be people in like sales enablement or people who support recruiting and hiring departments or coaches, that caters a lot better towards channel partnerships. So it's something that we'll probably revisit. I don't know, it's a little bit murky right now in the air, but the way the product is going is going to shape that a lot better. So excellent. Drew, thank you so much. This has been incredibly insightful. And a very enjoyable conversation. How can people get hold of you? Uh, best you way, <laughs> yeah, if you want to, yeah. Just Drew at crystalnose.com. Actually, the best way to get hold of me is my LinkedIn. Just Drew Dykes, you know. I'm, I'm like living on that these days. As long as it's as long as it's good, you know, <laughs> a good human message, I'll get back to you. Excellent, Drew. Thank you so much. All right, thank you, Marcus. Appreciate it. This is Marcus Cappy signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation insightful, useful, then please like, comment, and share, and subscribe. Tell your friends. And if you feel that you'd be a good guest on the podcast because you have something interesting to say around sales, channel, enterprise, recruitment, management around sales, then please get in touch. Or if there's an author or a specialist in the field that you feel would be a good guest, then please connect me with them or make an introduction and I'd love to get them on the show. So that's me, Marcus Cappy, signing off. Happy selling, stay safe and don't let Corona get you down. Bye-bye.